Thank you, Brandon. Uh, our scripture reading this morning comes from uh, the letter of 1 John. We've been in a series walking through uh, that letter bit by bit. And so we've come to chapter 2. We're going to read verses 28 and 29 and then carry over into chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Uh, just a warning. These are heavy, heavy verses. Uh, and they should, they should, if you feel shaken uh, as we read, that's okay. I would be more concerned if you didn't. And so uh, buckle your seatbelts, okay? As, just as we read. The reading is going to be a lot worse than the sermon. Okay? So let's read it. 1 John 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, my kids started back to school this past week, so pray for our family. Pray that we would be safe and, and healthy and make that adjustment. Uh, but, but what that meant was that the week was full of basic skills assessments. Because it's been five months since they've been in the classroom, and so the point of a basic skills assessment is to create a baseline so that you can chart a student's progress as they go throughout the year and see how much ground uh, they've gained, or in this case, so that you can see how much ground has been lost after so many months off and away from school. This letter that John is writing to the church functions in much the same way. He's putting us, these people he's writing to, and us through a series of tests to help us assess our spiritual condition, to create a baseline for what he says, this is real Christianity, the real thing. And what he, ref what, what he refers to as a sharing uh, of the church's life together, which is a sharing in God's life. That's, that's what he calls the real thing up in chapter 1, verse 3, that we have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. We share, we share, have a share in the church's life, which is together sharing in God's life. Or in these verses, he talks about abiding in him, verse 28, which, which refers to a vital, intimate relationship with the living God. That's the real thing. And John wants you to take the test so that you know that you know God like that. And I would say to you, the reason why we've chosen to do this series is after so many months off where we still have people 
looking in from home, the crowds are down, you know, 30 to 40% of the church has come back, but there are a lot of people who haven't. So after so many months off, it's a good practice to go through, to ask hard questions and to do a spiritual assessment because spiritual muscles atrophy the same way physical muscles do if you don't use them. And so we've been taking a series of tests and the test that we're going to take today is this. It's very simple. It's hard, but it's very simple. And it's this. Are you alive spiritually? Do you have a living faith? James talks about a faith that is dead in his letter. It's not a living thing. But are you, are you alive to spiritual things? I mean, you know you're physically alive, right? Because your heart is beating in your chest and you're moving around and you get hungry and things happen. Especially the older you get. But are you spiritually alive? Do you have the same assessment of your spiritual reality? That's the question I want us to ask of ourselves this morning. Are we spiritually alive? Is there spiritual life through us? And you can know you're spiritually alive by these three tests. A A person who's spiritually alive lives, first, a supernatural life. Secondly, an obedient life. And thirdly, a believing life. And those three kind of build on one another, you'll see as we go along. But let's just start with, am I spiritually alive? Are you spiritually alive? Well, the first thing to consider is that a person who's spiritually alive lives a supernatural life. Now, twice in this passage, at the beginning and towards the end, you come across the phrase. So chapter 2, 29, chapter 3, verse 9, born of God. You see that phrase? Uh, We've been reading in the Gospel of John in our community Bible reading. In John chapter 3, Jesus had an encounter with a man named Nicodemus, who is a ruler of the Jews, is how he's described. And he's a very religious man. He's a very good man, a moral man, but he wasn't spiritually alive. And that's possible, by the way. And so Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus was very confused about these things. Good theology. He, like I said, he was moral. He was genuinely curious about Jesus, but none of that meant that he was spiritually alive. And the implication of Jesus' teaching to that man was, in fact, just the opposite, that Nicodemus was spiritually dead and needed to be supernaturally born again. Not physically born again. That was part of the confusion for Nicodemus at first. but, but, But born of water and of spirit, it says there. Born of God. And that phrase leads to just a couple of truths that we can derive that are really, really important. And truth number one would be that we, all of us, the human condition, we're naturally, spiritually dead in sins and trespasses. We're flatlined. There's no pulse. We have no desire to know God, no power to obey him. Nothing, just deadness. And so your problem is not that you've been bad and you need to learn how to be good. That's not Christianity. That's not what church is about. That's not what it means to have a relationship with God and Jesus. It's what it means to get religion, but those are different things. The problem problem is something different. And the message of Christianity is you're dead and you need to be made alive. And that leads to the second truth that only a supernatural work of the Spirit of God can make us alive. The passage we read a while ago in the first chapter of John said, of all of us, of those who have had a genuine encounter with Jesus, that we've been born of God, born again, not of blood, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, 
If you've been born again, you didn't, you know, well, let me, if you, you didn't decide to be born, that was decided for you. And you don't decide to be spiritually reborn. God decides that. You don't repent and believe your way to being spiritually alive. If you're repenting and believing, it's because God has already brought you to life. Born of God, it says here. And so this is why, this is why we baptize children before they're old enough to believe because we're saved by grace and not by faith. Did you hear that? We're saved by grace. We're not saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. So parents, pray with your kids and teach them the Bible and bring them to church. But no, you can do all of that, but it's all for nothing unless God comes and supernaturally works through those means to make them spiritually alive. Now here's the application. That means that if you're a Christian, if you're in the room, every single, every single person of faith, every single person who has believed is a miracle. Because it all begins with God's supernatural power, bringing the dead to life. And therefore, all of Christianity, every part of it from that moment on is also a miracle. It's also supernatural. God's supernatural power is the beginning and then it's everything else too. So how do you know if in fact you're spiritually alive? Well, you can look and you can investigate and you can see a supernatural power at work in and through you. Something is carrying you along in ways that you can't even explain. There's a moral strength and desires and impulses in you and a strength about which you live that makes you different than everybody else, as different as life and death. Have you been born of God? And that's the question. Have you been born of God? I want to say it that pointedly because John does. Is the beating heart of the resurrected Jesus beating in you? If you're not sure, then here's my advice. Go to God right now and say to him, pray that verse that Jeff read. Say to him, God, take out of my life the heart of stone and give to me a new heart. Father, take, you know, and I would pray over us, Father, take away our deadness, our spiritual apathy, and make us alive, because every Christian lives a supernatural life, no exceptions. Every Christian is a miracle. Secondly, that leads to not only that if you're spiritually alive, that means you're living a supernatural life, but it also means you're living an obedient life, because a supernatural life is an obedient life. And so here we get to the heart of the text and in, in the hard parts, where in, in chapter three, verses six and seven, and then in chapter in verses nine and ten, he says, "No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God." Now, full disclosure, I have a history with these verses. Uh, and I, I alluded to this a couple weeks ago, especially verse 9. Uh, when Ashley and I were at FSU, we were befriended by a girl who was in Ashley's major, who was also a street preacher on campus. I mean, I, like what you would imagine, hellfire and brimstone, yelling and screaming on the commons there at Florida State toward everybody, telling us all we were going to go to hell. Everyone was going to hell, except her, apparently. Now, she's become famous. I didn't know this. We looked her up last night. She, she ha, she's now called the Activist Mommy and has had 70 million views on her YouTube channel of things. that she's, So she's apparently famous. And so we had a run-in with her. She was so intense. And she was intent on saving Ashley and I because we were good church-going kids who, in her mind, uh, didn't, didn't 
truly know Jesus. Now, we obviously disagreed over things, and we tried things out, but it led to uh, her inviting us over to her apartment one night uh, to have a conversation where she was going to teach us about what Christianity really is, and she opened her Bible to 1 John 3, 9. And, of course, she was reading out of the old King James Version, and in the King James Version, it says this, whoever is born of God doth not commit sin. He cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, who can argue with that? I mean, what 19-year-old has the resources? And so it shook both Ashley and I pretty significantly because, of course, what she was saying, you know, in her theology, uh, she believed in sinless perfection. And so if you're a Christian, you don't sin. And Ashley and I, you know, we, we thought we were Christians and we knew we sinned. And so it really blew up our, our life for a few days. I mean, really, for a few days, just soul anguish. And then about... Nine or 10 o'clock one night, we called Ashley's pastor. <laughs> uh, and we just, because for college students, of course, that's like mid-afternoon, you know, right? I mean, we didn't think, he's probably asleep. And he was an older gentleman, so we probably did wake him up. But he expressed uh, a real uh, delight in getting a phone call from college. And I would say it would delight me for a college student to call me at one o'clock in the morning and ask me a theological question. I'd get out of bed for that. I would. And so he walked us through, uh, we peppered him with questions, and he patiently walked us through the scriptures and taught us, uh, and, it, and it was a lovely experience. Now I tell the story because verse 9 should be unsettling like that. It's not something that you should just rush past. We have to make sense of what John is saying here and what he's not saying. Because this is a significant verse, and, he, and so he's, let's, let's start with what he's not saying. He's not saying that if you sin, then you aren't a Christian, now, how do I know that? Well, I didn't know enough back then, but I do know now, because I have a degree in theology now, that just 39 verses before verse 9 of chapter 3 and verse 8 of chapter 1, he writes, if we, have no, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I could have ended the conversation with her that quickly, but she had me. She knew the Bible better than I did, which is why you need to know your Bible. Not to mention all the other parts of the Bible that teach the same truth. Now, Martin Luther laid down the foundational gospel truth that we are all simul justus et peccator, that we are all simultaneously righteous and sinners, both at the same time, always at the same time. We're not righteous because we do not sin. We are counted righteous according to the righteousness of Jesus, and Christianity stands or falls on that truth. And so John is not saying that if you commit sin, it means you're not a Christian. But he is also not saying that obedience doesn't matter, not at all. In fact, the teaching is that when a person becomes a Christian, they are so profoundly changed, radically, that word means at the root, radically at the root, that it is impossible for them to live the way they did before. If you notice there, the ESV has translated it differently than the King James does. And in this case, it's a much better translation. It says, no one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. And again, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, verse 6. So a person who has been born of God does not make a practice of sinning. They sin, of course, but they don't make a habit out of it. Rather, verse 7, they practice righteousness. And the language in both cases refers to what you're making of your life. It's a particular verb that keeps coming up over and over again in these verses it's the verb poeo. And it's actually a verb that's used all throughout the scripture. It describes God's act of creation. It's, it's used of making, you know, making something, molding the clay and, and producing or creating something. And so he's saying, that's why, they, that's why the ESV translates it this way. He's saying, if you really 
truly believe in Jesus, you won't go about your life making out of your life a sinful lifestyle. Now, we could, here's the analogy I would use to help you uh, understand this word poeo. If you make dinner at home, right, you're poeoing dinner. You begin with an idea of the kind of good, tasty, healthy food that you want to feed your family, which takes some time and energy. And then you go on Pinterest and you research recipes and you write those things down or you come up with some kind of organization, you know, idea to keep all those things in front of you. And then once you decide, then you have to go through what are we going to have tonight? And then you write down all the ingredients that you'll need to make whatever you're going to make. And then you have to go to the store and spend the money to buy all of those things. And then you come home and you lay it all out on the counter and then you schedule the time to set aside whatever else you're doing to come into the kitchen and cook it. And you set the table, you text everybody in the family, at least that's the way it works in our house, that dinner is at 6 p.m., everybody comes in, and then you all sit down and you enjoy the meal. You're poet-owing dinner. And the question John asks is, are you poet-owing Are you preparing and using your money and your time and your resources and organizing your life around? Are you poet-owing sin? Or are you poet-owing righteousness? Are you researching and planning and preparing for a life of rebellion against God? Or are you aspiring and then creatively building and spending your time and your money toward a life of righteousness? The person who has been born of God has been so profoundly changed There is a new seed of God's life in them that they cannot go on poetowing sin. That's what John's teaching us here. They still sin, of course, but the whole current of their life is toward the goal of righteousness. In contrast, the person who is poetowing sin is not doing so for righteousness. He's of the devil, verse 8. John says, that person is doing what the devil does. Now, this is hard teaching, but it is the teaching And look there at verse 5. You know, he says, that he, Jesus Christ, appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now that's a reference to the cross. And there upon the cross, Jesus took our sins upon himself and paid the penalty with his own blood. And if you're trusting in that, then your sins, listen, here's the good news. Here's the gospel good news. If you're trusting in the work that Jesus accomplished for you on the cross, then your sins are gone as far from you as the east is from the west. Isn't that great? But there's an old Isaac Watts hymn that says, Forbid it, mighty God. Nor let it e'er be said that we whose sins are crucified should raise them from the dead. The cross has made it possible for you to have a share in the life of the Trinity. That seed of God's life planted in your heart and destined to continue to grow throughout your life makes it possible for you to go on, makes it impossible, I'm sorry, for you to go on in the same kind of life that you were living without it. And so we see a person who is spiritually alive lives a supernatural life. And a supernatural life is an obedient life, but let's look at the third thing as we finish. But an obedient life is lastly a believing life. And let me explain. And this is really, verses 1 through 3 are just some of the most marvelous in all of the scriptures to me. But in a number of different places, the Bible says that that we're obedient. You grow in your faith. You not only come to your, you grow in your faith, not by trying harder, but simply by beholding God's glory. So 2 Corinthians 3 18 is a seminal verse for our church in many ways. It says, we, are, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How are we changed? How are we transformed? By beholding his glory, by seeing him. How do we become more like Jesus? By 
beholding, by gazing upon him. And the opposite is also true. It caught my attention. Verse 6, he says, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Because what is the remedy to sinning? You see him. It goes so far to say that John says that when he appears, in those verses there, it says there's, on the day when he appears, in other words, when we get to heaven and we finally see Jesus as he really is, it says like that we will be like him. Did you see that? It says as soon as we see him, we'll be like him. Simply by seeing him, simply by finally beholding him in all of his glory. We will finally see him, not dimly as through glass, but face to face, and all of the sin and the shame will just fall off of us. And we will become, finally, the people that we've always wanted to be. Now, isn't that amazing? Can you even imagine? But here's the thing, it can start to happen now, right now. Not as we see him, because of course we can't see him, but as we believe. In heaven, we will live by Sight and not faith, but for now we live by faith. And so here's the question. What is it that we will see then on that day that will cause the sin and shame to just fall off of us? What is it that we have to believe from now until then, until we get to that day that makes it possible for us to be spiritually alive in the way that we're describing? It's right there in verse 2, verses 1 and 2, excuse me, where he writes, see. (laughs) He starts there in verse 1 without see. Or you might have a translation, I think it's better, behold. See, behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. Now here's what's happening. John's getting emotional here. And it's really the only way to read that. It's really the only way to say those things. He wants us to get emotional too. We should get emotional when we think about the way we're loved by God. He wants the truth to overflow our minds into all the rest of us and for us to be overcome by the wonder of God's love because that's what's happened to him. I mean, the language, the language here is strange. There's an idiom in the Greek that's hard to translate. And so that's why you have all of these different translations if you look at the different, different Bibles uh, because it really, it really is almost a question. That might be the best way uh, to describe what, what, what um, John's doing here. And it's meant to communicate, he's just... He's almost, it's not that he's confused. It's, it's so great that he can't put an exclamation point on the end of it. It's a question mark on the end of it because he just can't quite talk himself in to believing that it could be true. Behold, he says, what kind of love God has for us. What manner of love, translations say, or how great is the love. But what it really means, and this is where it gets weird, but truly, in, in the, what it really means is What country does this love come from? What planet? What planet does this kind of love come from? Because it's unreal. It's otherworldly. It's unlike anything I've ever experienced, John says. It's unlike any other kind of love because it's sheer grace. That is, it has nothing to do with our behavior. He loves us in spite of all of our sin and failure and disgrace which is what I so desperately want my friend from Florida State to know, that I don't think she still, she still doesn't know. And to believe means that that truth of God's love for you and it being sheer grace, that it overwhelms 
your rationality and becomes your emotional gravity and flows out into the rest of your life. And you just live amazed by it. It's just a miracle to you. And no matter how hard you try, you just can't seem to get over it. It just blows your mind every time. There's an old um, Robin Williams movie that a lot of people haven't seen called The Fisher King. Um, and it's a really, it's a really great, it's a neat, neat little movie. But Robin Williams, his character is in love with a woman who is really eccentric and, and painfully socially awkward. Uh, she has no friends. She's a wallflower. She lives alone. Uh, and they go on a date uh, because in a creepy way, he, he's been kind of spying on her. and find, He asks her on a date anyway. That's, that's a weird part of the story, but it's not really to the point. They go on a date, and at the end of the date, uh, he invites her to come into his apartment so they can talk. And she kind of freaks out emotionally at that and refuses. And she says, no, because I know what will happen. Um, you'll get to know me, and when you get to know me, you won't like me, because everybody who really gets to know me, they end up not liking me. And every man I've ever, you know, gone on a date with, uh, they get to know me a little better, and they decide they don't like me, and they don't call, and then just, then I just feel terrible about myself, and, and she's just going on and on, and he says, okay, (laughs) he looks at her, and it's, it's sweet the way he does it, but this is typically not sweet, he looks at her, he says, shut up. It's time for you to shut up, and listen, and he says, his response is, he said, he's quite eccentric as well. Uh, he says, I do know you. And he goes through, I know that you do this on Wednesday afternoons, and he kind of lets it out of the bag that he's been following around and so forth. He says, I've known you for a long time. He says, I know you hate your job, and you don't have, uh, and, and you don't have many friends, and I know you feel uncoordinated, and you don't feel as wonderful as everybody else, but I love you. And I think you're the greatest. And I will never leave you. And, and what happens to her is she just becomes so overwhelmed. I mean, she's just taken aback by this. And she's so overwhelmed. She's never experienced something like this. And all she can do and look, is look at him and she puts her hands on his face and she says, are you real? Because his love feels like a miracle. And that's what it means to believe. It's the way you can tell whether you're a Christian or just a moral person. Because the difference between Christianity and religion is there. A real Christian is a person who's, who says, it's an absolute miracle that God loves me. Can you believe he loves me? I can't get over it. It's an acid test. A real Christian sees everything that comes from God as a gift. They know oh, the depth of their own sin and they feel it. And so they live with this overwhelming sense of wonder and gratitude that any good would come to them, let alone the kind of love John talks about here. But the religious person is working hard and being good to get things from God. And so if you ask a real Christian about their relationship with God, they'll say, it's a miracle. I have no, I have no explanation. I, I, I really, it's, it's, I don't know how God could love someone like me, and I can't get over it. But if you ask a religious person if they're a Christian, they answer, of course. Of course. I mean, listen, if you work hard and show up at the end of the week, to get your paycheck and they give you your paycheck, you don't say, behold, you paid me. Are you real? Nobody does that. You say, of course. Of course you paid me, I earned it. But there's no wonder. But a real Christian is alive spiritually. They live a supernatural life and all of that supernatural power for obedience comes from knowing that you have God's love and being amazed, being amazed 
knowing that you did nothing to earn it, and it's all grace. And here's what John's saying. If just a seed of that truth remains in you, just a seed, if just a seed of that remains in you, it's enough to change you so that you cannot go on poeowing sin the way you once did. Paul says this, the love of Christ controls us so that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn, which is a classic entitled, And Can It Be? And it really, it's full of questions. He just keeps asking questions because he really can't put exclamation points on the end of things either. It's just too wonderful. And so it comes in the form of questions. He says, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me? Who caused his pain for me? Who him to death pursued? And then the chorus says, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Charles Wesley couldn't get over the fact that God loved him. It was a miracle to him. He almost almost couldn't believe it. He was amazed by it. What about you? Would you pray with me? So, Father, as we sit and ponder... As John instructs us, beholding the just amazing, miraculous love that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ, it it is in many ways, we, we can put no claim on it. We have no claim. We have absolutely no claim. And we can't, we we can't look at what you've done for us in Jesus and say, of course, as if as if it was something we could have predicted or arrived at on our own. No, the, 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 only, the only adjective that goes with grace is amazing. And yet we confess, we confess to you that, that, um, that instead of amazement and wonder, we often feel boredom or we feel nothing. We feel indifferent. We feel exhaustion because instead of resting in your love, we, and instead of listening to your voice, we keep trying to to earn your love and favor despite you telling us that it doesn't work, whatever it might be, would you break through? Because that's what it takes. Would you break through supernaturally? For some of us into hearts of stone to rip apart that stone heart and plant the, the life of God, the seed of God there in the soil that, in which it can grow. But even for, for most of us, would you break into our spiritual apathy and indifference? Would you break into our exhaustion? Would you break into our fear and our anxiety and our grief and our pain? Would you open our eyes to see the marvelous love which you've shown to us in Jesus? And would something burst in our hearts and come out as gratitude and come out as tears and come out as worship and come out as song? Because you're worthy of all of those things, which is why we end our service singing. Not just grace, amazing grace. Because your love, in fact, is amazing. And we marvel at you, great God and Father. We love you. Oh, that you love us. What a miracle. What a gospel. What a Savior, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In order to have the strength that we need to go and live the kinds of lives we're called to live here, Uh, This benediction is important because what it reminds us is God is not saying to us here at the end of our service, now go, go and prove yourself. Go, go and work hard.
go, go and earn whatever comes to you. He's saying, no, um, don't, you don't go to try to earn my love. Here it is, I offer it to you. Here's the blessing that I pronounce over your life. Now go in light of this wondrous love. Go beholding, go resting, go trusting in and relying upon God's love for you. Because if your faith is in Jesus, then it's yours. As sure as the sun is going to rise tomorrow. Amen? And so receive this word then. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. Cool.